At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. My family thinks I'm crazy. A podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most. Because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I give them in a shade. creep to a frozen halt at their northernmost extent, a place slowly recovering after being left barren from glacial drifts 18,000 years ago. Newfoundland, an island far in the northeast corner of North America, Canada's fourth largest island, slightly larger than the state of Maine, a place that very few go to, and even fewer know that this so-called newfound land is very old and has been found, ironically, many times over many centuries via a variety of cultures from all across the world. And today, Dr. Ronald Ryan joins me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast to discuss the hidden history of Newfoundland and the lost Beothic people. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this episode with Dr. Ronald Ryan. of the nature of the ice in this part of Newfoundland. If somebody would care to look at a map of Newfoundland Island, there is a a bowl, B-O-W-L. There is a bowl that stretches from Pogo Island in the east to Green Bay in the west and that area freezes, the ocean freezes during the winter. So much so that some years cars are able to go from village to village on the ocean ice. 
this this ice that forms in that area I think initially they might have been rather disconcerted that they found themselves marooned on this island until they began to understand that the general opinion that people have about this island, some people say, for example, birds won't even piss here, that this, this island provides a tremendous living experience. And the Chinese and the Norse began a new civilization. There might have been as many as, I don't know, 50,000 Chinese, because I don't know how many, how many ships there were originally, but eventually, maybe around 1450, a power play developed civil war between the various linguistic and ethnic groups that were amongst the Chinese, and a great many people simply left. Okay. All right, ladies and gentlemen, here we are on the My Family Thinks Some Crazy podcast, and today's guest is a doozy. He is the Reverend Dr. Ronald Ryan here on the My Family Thinks Some Crazy podcast to discuss his book, The Vinland Map, An Authentic North American Creation. And as well, we're going to be talking about some Chinese explorers and even even Buddhist pyramids here in North America in the pre-Columbian times, a subject that we have broached many times on the show before is becoming one of my favorite topics. But before we get into it, Dr. Reverend Ro- Ronald Ryan, I mean, you have two titles. You're, you're educated. I imagine you've been studying this stuff for, for a long time. What brought you to this subject initially? Where did you initially become curious in, in this Vinland map and as it relates to, you know, our history here in North America, which for the most part, as we both know, has been ignored by the folks that we're supposed to be trusting, you know, to, to tell us the history of this place. Okay, I'm going to respond to the second part of that question first. I now have another book that I hope will be available by the end of March. And I'm going to read to you the blurb that I have on the back of the book because that will create a context. So now I'm, I'm going to read the blurb. All right. The existing paradigm of the history of North America says that there was no historical medieval period in North America and that the Christian church began after the voyages of Columbus and Cabot with the first church structure attributed to the Spanish in Mexico around 1540. In fact, Christianity began its activity in North America hundreds of years before Columbus and Cabot, and maybe as much as 1,000 to 1,200 years earlier, and maybe as early as the 200s. That will be astonishing to any reader familiar with or especially steeped in 
the current historical paradigm, and in particular, will be perceived as devastating by academics who have built their careers on that false paradigm, one that cannot be justified in any rational manner or on any defensible evidence. It becomes obvious that someone sabotaged the history of North America beginning in the 1300s or earlier, and that someone destroyed or suppressed every piece of information originating in North America and suggested that there might have been, that suggested that there might have been a Christian culture and a technological civilization here before 1500. Moreover, any information originating in Europe about such a phenomenon that could not be destroyed has been declared fraudulent. The pattern is unmistakable. A, cons a concerted effort to create a false paradigm of the history of North America began at least as early as the 1300s and is still ongoing. Who would want to hide the real history of North America as early as 700 years ago and want to keep it hidden even today? To whose profit or what reasons? Based on ancient documents and built artifacts, this book establish establishes that the false paradigm was deliberately, even brilliantly, constructed, and in order to cover up atrocities in North America, such as the Holocaust inflicted on the Beatic people of Newfoundland Island, of whom as many as 500,000 were murdered, and against whom genocide is still ongoing. This fringe history is based on evidence, which is more than can be said for other histories that have been cobbled together and distorted so that it can fit the confines of the existing false paradigm. Now that is the blurb that I have on the new book and the uh, Vinland map, which I have no doubt is authentic, has been declared false or fake or fraudulent because the Vinland map challenges the predominant historical paradigm that is still undergirding virtually all of the early history of this continent. Wow. Bravo. Way to sum that up. I am excited to, to get into this, and uh, I apologize for not reading the title of the new book. I see it here, The First 1,000 Years of Christianity and the Church in North America. Wow, this is fantastic. And you know, it's awfully synchronistic considering our friend Graham Dunlop sent me a message only a few days ago saying, hey, you ought to talk to this gentleman. And a, a week prior to that, maybe a little longer, someone sent me a message, as people usually do. You know, they know I'm interested in this kind of thing. 
and they sent me a message saying, hey, check it out in your local area. There's this ancient America article about a Christian sort of church in the woods, right? And I I read further, and it turns out in Guilford, Connecticut, which is sort of on the shore, sort of equidistant between the mouth of Long Island Sound and New York City, and there are basically petroglyphs in a forest called the Kakaponset State Forest that can only be explained as Christian and I forget the exact dialect or language, but it was a a Mediterranean culture that had visited this place and left some Christian iconography in the form of petroglyphs on stone. And for the most part, I mean, you know, there's there's no story or or historical society preserving this. It's just left in, in the woods to sort of, you know, <laughs> exist under the elements, right? And if that structure, I'm delighted to hear that information. If that structure is not protected, there are people who would want to destroy it because I believe it challenges the current paradigm. And it is awfully important to some folks that I will name eventually who want no evidence whatsoever that Christianity existed in North America before 1500 or before the Spanish built the first Christian structure in Mexico in 1540. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow, this is fascinating. So you know, I, I'm already brimming with questions, but maybe we should let you begin and, and maybe take us through what, what you think is possibly a good intro or 101 for people who may not be familiar with this material. Maybe they're finding this episode and, and this subject is new to them. What 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 are some of the, the key evidences? As I asked you, you said you wanted to answer this part of the question too. What initially drew you to this topic? Okay. The false historical paradigm says that the Aboriginal people of Newfoundland Island are extinct. They, some people call them the Beothic. I will continue to use that term. I am Beothic. I don't think I'm extinct. I grew up in a very isolated, remote fishing village, lost in the wilderness of ocean and forest and mountains on the northeast coast of Newfoundland Island. And even though I knew that I was theotic, it was, we had already learned in school that we did not exist. And even when we existed, we were simply a small group of savage hunter-gatherers for whom, according to some energy at the time, it would be a waste. We were so depraved that it would be an affront to Jesus Christ 
for them to spend their energy sharing the Christian gospel with us. We were beneath the Christian gospel, which is an an interesting statement because we were already Christian. (laughs) But we were not. we, We were already convinced, or many people were convinced, that what was in our textbooks was accurate. And even today, most people don't understand that the textbooks were propaganda. And many people, of course, believe that if it's in a book, then it must be correct. Until I show them all of the inconsistencies that are in various books. But in any case, to answer your question specifically, I had occasion to go to China in April of 2011. And I should preface that by saying that I think I had read up to that time most of the information that was available on the Beatles. And I was quite aware of some drawings that a Beatles lady by the name of Shanna drew in 28, the year before she died. And the, the officials, whoever were the opinion leaders of the day, took great pleasure in announcing that she was the last of the Beatics. And then a friend of mine invited me to go to the Confucian Museum that's in the center of Beijing. And it was a university at one time, but it closed six or seven or 800 years ago. But it's been maintained meticulously as a museum. As we were leaving the a rather extensive premises, my friend suggested that we would go into the temple, the Confucian or Buddhist temple, or both, that was at the entrance to the premises. So we went in, and this is meticulously maintained, and I wandered up to the area that we would call the altar area in a Christian church, and I almost fell over because... There on poles were the, let me say, the analogs of the symbols that Shana Dizit had drawn in 28. I knew that I had stumbled on something important. I said to myself, these symbols don't belong in China. They belong in Newfoundland. I did not, I had no idea at the time of the significance of what I was looking at. Now, I was also quite familiar with some of the carvings that some people have called pendants that the Beatics made. And these carvings tend to be about, in general, about three inches long maybe an inch wide and maybe an eighth of an inch thick and made of bones. They were made of bones. So in September of 2011, I had an opportunity to visit the Museum of China just off Tiananmen Square. And I wandered around not knowing where I was going. And I wandered into this room And I had an emotional experience. I I have to say that it was an emotional experience because 
there in the display cases were, again, the analogs of the those small carvings that are known to have been the products of the biopic. But, of course, these items in the display cases in the museum were of metal, whereas the biopics had them in bone, but they were the same shapes. They were the same, they were the same size. They were the same thicknesses, thicknesses. And those items in the display case at the museum were ancient Chinese coins, currency. And, uh, for the next three days, I didn't even sleep. For the next three days, I was analyzing every single piece of information that I had ever heard about the Beothic. And at the end of that three days, I knew that we had had a colossal lie perpetrated on us and on, on the historians, because the historians believe this stuff. So at that point, I realized that since I was already retired and I had other projects in mind, I realized that I was going to have to begin a research project that I paid for myself out of my old age pension and that has now been ongoing for 12 years. I have written an account of my research, evidence-based research, research that is based on documents and hard-built artifacts. I've tried to keep opinion out of it. I've tried to keep speculation out of it. This is a science-based document. You don't have to call me reverend anymore, although that is true. You can if you want, but the fact is that I also have a background in science. I have a PhD in science. So I understand science and I use a scientific protocol in all of the research that I have done over the past 12 years. And I now have maybe somewhere close to 4,000 pages of, let's say, research report. And that 4,000 pages now, I've broken it up, is now seven volumes. And the first volume that I published was The Vinland Map. The second volume will be the, the, the book that I just quoted from, The First 1,000 Years of Christianity. And I have not only traced the origin and history of the Beothic people, but also the origin of virtually all of the indigenous people on the North American continent, east of the Rocky Mountains, north of the Gulf of Mexico. And if you talk with any of the, of the indigenous people in the United States or Canada, they have no history they can get back maybe as far as the 1600s. <clears throat> Prior to that, they have absolutely no idea of who they are or where they came from. 
I will stop talking there unless you ask another question. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. I'm very excited. And I know we just met, but this conversation is right at home here on this podcast. I've had recently Native American traditionalist Lauren W. Jeffries on the show. He's written a book called Sacred Count, and it deals with the Mayan long count. But one of the things that he's knowledgeable in is the the Chinese and their explorations of North America. And one of the stories he told me was that around 400 AD, a emperor sent a fleet of ships from China over to North America, and they came back with these maps, right? And he, he actually even described them as eunuchs, which is an interesting point considering, you know, if you're a eunuch, well, you can't, you know, screw off and, and not come back and, and, you know, start your life over, as we say here in America, possibly. But yeah, no, it, they were bound by this, you know, imperial duty, and I'm sure they took it very seriously and they mapped it, mapped out the, the West Coast and, and came back. But another sort of tragic aspect of that story is they also sent another fleet that happened to coincide with the disappearance of the mound builders. And what Lauren speculates, I don't exactly know where he he has you know cited his sources for this, but he speculates that the Chinese infected the mound builders here in the Mississippi region of North America with smallpox, and that explains why they rapidly disappeared and seemingly themselves they were unconnected to the rest of the Native Americans, as you described, east of the Rockies and north of the Gulf of Mexico, which, you know, when the, the colonists came here, you know, to, to throw another crab in the pot here. Recent guest Ross Ben was on the show and he described how Elias Budenow, who was one of the congressional, continental congressional presidents of the United States, because there were about 13 or 14 presidents before the however many presidents we have now, 55, I believe, maybe 50. But Elias Budenow was more known for his book, A Star in the West, which basically tried to explain the origin of the Native Americans as sort of Babylonians from the Bible or, or maybe even lost, lost tribes, right, from Israel. And that was a very popular idea in the colonies back then. But the, the Beothic, they precede all of this, which is why is, I think this is so fascinating. I mean, we're talking about, you know, more than a thousand years ago now, they were officially contacted by, we'll say, the Scandinavian explorers, right? That's Those are the, the historians are okay with admitting that, that Scandinavians came over here. But it seems like there there's a, a deeper story here because their neighbors, the Mi'kmaq, are one of the only tribes in North America with the flag. And I know I'm jumping all over the place here, but to give you a question, if you'd like you know, you can comment on anything I just said, but to give you a question, how closely related are the Beothic and the Mi'kmaq? And, and what do you know about their, their connection? Let, let's, rather than my answering that question specifically right now, 
keep it in mind. And if I don't answer the question, then ask it again. There, there is a, an important demarcation, an important historical demarcation. And that demarcation is, begins in 1402. Maybe an extension of the bubonic plague that was ravaging Europe. A bubonic, a, uh, a plague swept across Iceland, Newfoundland, and then went on to the continent so that Iceland lost about 50% of its population. It appears that Newfoundland, the people in Newfoundland at the time, who were basically European, by the way, but anyway, a, a great proportion of the population of Newfoundland was wiped out. This disease apparently continued to, to morph, to, to change, and it swept across the continent, taking its time, destroying people as it went. And at the, the end of some point, maybe around 1430, there was virtually nobody left in North America, east of the Rockies, north of the Gulf of Mexico, uh, and as far north as uh, Hudson's Bay. You will not find, and I am confident, you will not find any artifacts that would indicate that the indigenous people who were in North America prior to 100, say, including the Mount Builders, who continued to exist beyond, say, 1430. In fact, the Chinese voyages that you talked about in approximately C500, the leader was Ho Xin, who was a Buddhist monk, and they called North America Fujian. But whoever or whatever they did, uh, certainly the human aspect of that was wiped out in that in that. In fact, the, the land was so empty that the Chinese discovered the empty land in the early 1430s. And they began a colony in Florida. And that was approximately 1432, 1433. The plague was still going. And that plague almost wiped out the entirety of that colony. And the remnants of that colony got back aboard their ships and beat it back to China. You will find the record of that in a book by an American lady who lives in the Mid-South, I'm not just sure, Alabama, Georgia, maybe. And the, the name of the book is To the Gates of... Ping Two. To the Gates of Ping Two. And the name of the author is Lori Bonner Nicholas. And that book was published five years ago, six years ago. So if she translated from the Chinese originals, the journal of somebody who 
made a record of the experience of the people who tried to establish that Chinese colony. And it is in uh, China on 20, I understand 20 or 25 of the uh, bamboo rolls that the Chinese used. So every piece of evidence, and I could continue with, with and recite pieces of evidence, every piece of evidence indicates that the continent was virtually empty of people as about, say, 1430. Your turn. Wow. Now... Does that mean that the, the folks that were here, the, the Native Americans that were here when, you know, people from England and Spain and the Dutch, they all came over and they there were Indians here, there were Native Americans here. Were they survivors of that plague or did they kind of maybe repopulate from places? Because obviously their numbers were you know, decimated. I, I've heard 44 million indigenous people lived in, in just North America. I don't know if that number is accurate or not, but it sounds to me like, you know, that plague shrunk that drastically. Uh, yeah. How, how do the, the, the survivors fit into to that time period afterwards? Are, are these a completely different group of people? Or are you suggesting that, you know, that their culture was lost with with this plague? It's a completely new group of people. Whether there were 44 million or not, I don't know. You are now quoting from Charles Mann and the book that he, he wrote, the title of that is 1491. And he writes mostly about Central and Northern South America. And in my opinion, his analysis is extremely faulty. And I think that for him to say there were 44 million people just south of the Great Lakes, when the Europeans arrived, I think he has absolutely no basis whatsoever for that statement. There were people. Uh, there were not 44 million. I am pretty confident about that because that would be inconsistent with other with documents that I have that I have found and read and and quoted from. So we're we're talking about a different group of people. The people who were who met the Europeans, such as the Pilgrim Fathers in 1620, were not the original people who were on the American continent prior to 1400. We're talking about a different people. And I can account for these people. <clears throat> but I'm trying to I'm trying to do this in some kind of historical order. Mm -hmm. Now, would you say that the Beothic people were a sort of survivor of the, the plague and, and they're altogether different from the the groups that, let's say, the Puritans ran into in, in Massachusetts and, and New England and the Quakers in, in Pennsylvania, entirely different groups? No, let me provide a little bit of history. Okay. People had been coming to Newfoundland 
from the pigeons, say the 200s, where we can be a little more confident about the 400s. The, there seems to be no doubt about the Iberians around 735. And, of course, there are Irish fishermen and Basque fishermen and God knows who else. So there was an, a European civilization on Newfoundland Island when the plague struck in 1402. A great part of that population was wiped out just what proportion I cannot say because I don't know. Now we 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 now have to talk about the Chinese before this makes any sense at all. The the Chinese were involved in this discovery voyages long before the fourteen hundred. And in fourteen seventeen one of the voyages took them up along the eastern seaboard, I believe, and eventually they landed on Newfoundland Island. That would have been early autumn of 1417. They wintered on Newfoundland Island, and in the spring of 1418, they continued up the Labrador coast in Davis Strait through into Hudson's Bay, mapping as best they could as they went. Then they sailed up the western coast of Hudson's Bay until they hit the ice. Then they had no choice but go east. And eventually they came to the northern part of Greenland. As they began to come down the western coast of Greenland, they found people in what historically is being called the Eastern Settlement, which is the western part of Greenland. It's not the eastern side at all, but it was called the Eastern Settlement. And there they found some Norse who had populated Greenland, and apparently the Norse were in bad straits. They offered the Norse, they offered to take them, their families, their priests, their cattle, to an island that they had just visited, which was much more amenable to making a living than where they were. The Norse accepted the offer, and they moved they moved the total population of southwestern Greenland, the so-called eastern settlement, because and there might have been 20 villages. They moved all of them to Newfoundland Island. They tried to... Newfoundland Island was not their first choice. Their first choice was Nova Scotia, what is today called Nova Scotia, or Acadia. And as anybody knows who has visited Newfoundland, that, that area of Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, is uh, has very good agricultural land, whereas in Newfoundland, agricultural land is at a premium because if, if rocks were valuable, Newfoundlanders would all be billionaires. But there were cannibals in that area, Acadia, what we understand as Acadia. And these cannibals made it very uncomfortable for these people, so the Chinese brought them back to Newfoundland. It's very interesting that I had already, from documentation, determined that the Chinese had carted the 
Norse from the Celtic Norse, I should say, actually, from Greenland to Newfoundland, there there is enough documentation to establish that that occurred. The part about going to Nova Scotia, I was not in that documentation. Curiously, about 15 years ago, a, a map came to light that some people called the, the Chinese world map. Some people are saying that this map is by Matthew Risi, a Jesuit who was in China in the 1600s, and that this map was prepared in 1605. However, doctor who now lives in the United States, he has done a meticulous examination of the map and has established, I think beyond doubt, that this map, the Chinese world map, was completed before 30. Now, something that Dr. Lee Su-Yung missed and I stumbled on when I was looking at the, the scripts in Chinese characters on the map, I had mentioned it to a number of Chinese people that I know and knew, and they all told me that this was old script and that they were not able to read it. But I was very fortunate in finding a person who had studied ancient Chinese scripts and who had was able to read one inscription in particular to me. And that inscription said, "We uh, more or less, we brought a white gentle people dressed in furs from the north <clears throat> to the south. And because of the cannibals, we had to go back to the island. So that script proves the Matteo Risi theory, authenticates the documentation that I already had, and of course my documentation authenticates the map. I will give you a chance to respond. Wow. It's absolutely fascinating and you know, given the, the players involved, you know, John Cabot, Columbus, and, and others, there were, you know, still to this day, political interests that want to keep all of these details under wraps. And it's absolutely fascinating to hear these, you know, Chinese explorers not only cooperating and sort of helping out, you know, these Scandinavian people, and now you said they they found them in the eastern settlement of Greenland, right? So that would be sort of in what looks like more of the southern kind of tip of Greenland? The, the southwest part of Greenland, yes. Okay, excellent. Yeah, and, and so they find them there. They bring them to Nova Scotia where there are cannibals and then decide we should bring them to Newfoundland instead. Yes. Wow. Okay. And this is really interesting because several folks, several authors that I've spoke to on this podcast have, have mentioned these kind of stories of cannibals. One that comes to mind is Brad Olson, who mentioned cannibals in Florida, which is funny because you mentioned the Chinese had a, a settlement in Florida as well. Not to say that they were at all related to the cannibalism, but his thought about them 
were that they were holdovers from Phoenicians who had maybe, you know, become stranded somewhere in Florida and resorted to cannibalism, which, you know, by all accounts, the place is a paradise. So I don't know how, why you would need to resort to cannibalism in a place like that. But, but either way, we have stories of, of, of tribes who are cannibalistic and, you know, several different authors have have described them, but very few attempt to to try to figure out exactly which groups are connected to one another, you know, and it becomes even murkier when you throw in the speculation about giant skeletons that are found all over the place. And I don't know where you stand on that, but, you know, to bring up artifacts and things that are found that seem out of place. Here in New England, there's the Westfordshire Knight, which is a petroglyph that basically looks exactly like a knight with what some people have described as a Templar cross. And I just had a conversation with Dr. Joseph Farrell, who's written, you know, dozens of books, but a couple of them specifically focusing on the Templars and the banking industry and how these Templars explored this part of the world, North America, specifically Newfoundland. Obviously, people are probably familiar with Scott Walters, you know, History Channel show dealing slightly with this subject. But where do you think the Templars fit into that? And to return to the question I asked earlier, how do the, the Beothic people relate to the Mi'kmaq? Because that's one thing that people point to with the Mi'kmaq is not only do they have a flag, which is uncommon among what we think of as Native American tribes, but their flag looks awfully similar to what the Templars had as their symbol. So, yeah, what do you, what do you make of that part of the, the equation? <clears throat> I have a couple of books on the Templars and I have read a fair amount <clears throat> on the Templars, but I have not read enough to convince me that the Templars were in fact in North America. I'm not saying that they were not. I mean, it's pretty difficult to establish that something did not happen, but I have seen very little convinced that would convince me. And what I have seen, I think is overreaching. I think that some folks have the idea that the Templars were in North America and then whatever they come across, they shoehorn into that particular narrative. They may be correct, but from a logical analysis perspective, I am not satisfied that they have made the case. I don't have an opinion about the Mi'kmaq flag, so somebody obviously with more expertise than me have made that connection, but the Mi'kmaqs are not the only people who have flagged. That is, I mean, most of the indigenous groups across North America have flagged. So I, I'm not sure what is going on there. Well, maybe it's I, I more correct say to say that they have the oldest flag. That, that, that may be more accurate, but go ahead. That that may that may be correct, but I am I'm I'm going to go beyond my comfort zone, and my comfort zone is based on on evidence, and I try not to engage in speculation, because then you get off track and you run into inconsistencies and so on. So that may be correct, but I do not have any information that would support that. 
what I what I will say, and and I'm sort of getting ahead of myself. I did have I did have a uh, a phone call from a guy who identified himself as a journalist uh, living in Ottawa, Canada, and he told me that he was Micmac and that he was, he had heard that some people were claiming to be Biopic descendants and I, my name seemed to be the one that stood out. So he called me and he was rather flippant and said that, well, I would have no difficulty establishing, you know, that I'm Micmac because we have all of those ancient legends that uh, prove that uh, the Micmacs have been here for 8,000 to 10,000 years. But now the Beothics is a different situation. And I uh, understand that you would have enormous difficulty establishing that you are Beothic. So I let him continue until he'd exhausted that perspective. And so then I said to him, would you explain to me again how you are confident that you have a history that you can establish that is eight to 10,000 years old. And he said, well, this is based on our ancient stories. And I said, in no other place in creation are people able to maintain stories, (laughs) oral stories, for more than a couple of hundred years. But let me ask you a question. Have you studied those Micmac stories? And he paused. And he said, no, I have not. And I said, I, in fact, have. And let me tell you, your 10,000-year-old Micmac stories are 700-year-old Norse stories, some of them word for word. And if you or your listeners would like to, let's say, verify that, I will refer you to I think the author's name is Charles Leland, L-E-L-A-N-D. His book was published in 1884 or 1885, and I think it's called the maybe Algonquin Myths or something like that. I think I've given you now enough information to to find that book. And in fact, Dr. Leland has done a side-by-side of the so-called 10,000-year-old Micmac stories and the Norse stories that are about seven or 800 years old. The Micmac stories are versions of the Norse stories word for word. So those 10,000-year-old legends that the indigenous people have are, in fact, about seven or 800 years old, and they are Norse. Wow. wow. Your turn. That's incredible. Wow. And, and 
I don't, I didn't mean to seem, you know, to, to be contradicting you there with that question. Of course, I couldn't have known, but you know, I am very open-minded in this conversation and I don't have any biases that I'm attached to. So I'm happy to, to proceed and ask another question, even though I do, I do recommend you look into Dr. Joseph Farrell's work because he is very good at citing his sources. He, he joked that if anything, his tombstone will have a footnote on it. He loves footnotes so much. So you, you might actually enjoy looking that over, even if it just confirms what you already know. So either way, let, let's let's digress from that point. I want to ask you about this culture that was here prior to the plague. I mean, do you think this is sort of a continuation of what happened to, you know, what we call the Druids in, you know, Great Britain, where, you know, this sort of Anglican church and the Romans before them executed these what they called pagan religions, when in fact, some of those religions resembled Christianity in some ways. I mean, are we looking at a, a similar situation there, or or is it entirely different? Okay, before I respond, I'm going to ask you to send me an email with the names of the gentlemen that you are citing, because uh, I am not familiar with them, and I would really appreciate getting access to that material and maybe... I might be able to establish some communication with these people. Absolutely. Yeah, I would be happy to do that. Let me let me back up a bit. The the Norse and the Chinese ended up on Newfoundland Island. It is possible that the that some of them may have proceeded up the St. Lawrence River rather than returning to Newfoundland. It is possible to interpret some of the information that may suggest that possibility. So I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how somebody might interpret that evidence. I, I acknowledge that some of the evidence might support that interpretation, but I think the evidence is really not sufficiently strong, but I do acknowledge that possibility. The Norse and the Chinese ended up on Newfoundland Island. There were some people here because they were able to relate to, let me say, the bishop, the Roman Catholic bishop that came with the Norse, they were able to relate to that person the experience that they had witnessed, experience with the plague from 1402 to 1404. And in fact, the Vinland map appears to have been a document that was prepared by the Norse with the assistance of the Chinese, which the bishop sent to Rome along with the description of what had happened to the Greenland faithful. And I think that, that there were two documents that went together. One was the map that's now called Vinland map, supposedly fake and a missive that explained how they had gotten 
to where they now were. And you will ask me, how do I know that? Simply because the Papal Bull of 1448 pretty well outlines that information. Now, the Papal Bull of 1448 has been declared a, a fake. Everything that would indicate that there was a Christian civilization in North America has been declared fakes. However, a reverend doctor, a priest, a father, Jellick, in the late 1880s, discovered the original in the Vatican archives. And that, that document is now available. It's not difficult to find. And that Papal Bull of 1448 pretty well describes what I just described to you. I believe that the Chinese, the intention of the Chinese was to leave Newfoundland, whatever they called it, on, on the Chinese world map. They call it the island like a, like a Chinese garden, in the, the, the script on the, the Chinese world map. However, the Chinese had absolutely no understanding of the nature of the ice in this part of Newfoundland. If somebody would care to look at a map of Newfoundland Island, there is a, a bowl, B-O-W-L. There is a bowl that stretches from Pogo Island in the east to Green Bay in the west. And that area freezes, the ocean freezes during the winter. So much so that some years, cars are able to go from village to village on the ocean ice. <laughs> wow. This, this ice that forms in that area has peculiar characteristics. I'm assuming it has some, something to do with the salinity of the ocean. Maybe for some reason it concentrates in a particular way. It has to do with the winds, with the temperatures, and so on. But this... This ice that forms is sticky. It's like a if you had a, a handful of sawdust mixed with wood glue, you take a handful, it would stick on almost anywhere. This ice is sticky. And even though the Chinese park their ships for the winter in very secure locations, almost safe from every wind that blows, they did not understand the nature of the ice. So as the ice formed around the ships, it stuck on. And every ship, well, what we say is make water. In other words, it leaks a little bit. So, <coughs> excuse me, they, they would have pumped their ships on a regular basis. And as they pumped the ships, the ships would rise a little bit. But the ice did not come up with the ship. And because the ice was stuck on to the sides of the ship, and as they pumped the ship, the ship rose, then the ice was, in fact, pulling off the strakes, pulling off the wooden timbers of the ship. 
without the Chinese realizing what was going on. Oh, wow. And then, and then when spring came and the ice melted, the ships sunk like stones. They filled with water in no time flat. So even though those ships were able to withstand a voyage from China halfway around the world, they were not able to deal with the ice in what we call Notre Dame Bay on the northeast coast of Newfoundland. In fact, I have found about 40 of these ships ranging in length from 450 feet to, I found one that is 600 feet. So they, the Chinese were, what proportion of their fleet they lost in that manner, I don't know. But certainly, let's talk about, you know, let's talk about 40, 40 ships. They were not able to take all of those other people on the ships that were not damaged. So the ships that were not damaged, damaged went back to China and the other people, you might call them unfortunate men and women, they were left on Newfoundland Island and they created a new culture based on Christianity and Buddhism and, Muslim, and, and Islam because most of, most of the crew of these ships would have been Buddhist, but there were a lot of Muslims amongst them. And the other ships went back to China. So I think initially they might have been rather disconcerted that they found themselves marooned on this island until they began to understand that the general opinion that people have about this island, some people say, for example, birds won't even piss here, that this, this island provides a tremendous living experience. And the Chinese and the Norse began a new civilization. There might have been as many as, I don't know, 50,000 Chinese, because I don't know how many, how many ships. There were originally, but eventually, maybe around 1450, a power play developed a civil war between the various linguistic and ethnic groups that were amongst the Chinese, and a great many people simply left. They would have known what was in the West. Okay, there was a civil war, and around, that would be around 1450, and the various <clears throat> groups, the ethnic and linguistic groups of Chinese, because there might have been, goodness knows how many, if they, if they came from Southeast China, there could be as many as 20 or 30 different ethnic and linguistic groups. And of course, there were also the Buddhists and the Muslims and the Christians. So they moved west and south. So North America was re- repopulated by the Chinese who were unwilling guests on Newfoundland Island. I will leave you to ask another question. Right. So this is the sort of melting pot of, of different ethnicities, we'll say, that created the Beothic people. Is that is that right? They're the result of these marooned travelers from the, the 1400s? Yes, and in, in fact, the with the remnant of the people who were on the island before, say, 1400, 
then primarily the the new population, the Gothics, were a, a hybrid of the Norse and the Chinese. I have <clears throat> substantially Norse DNA, but I have some Chinese DNA. And all of the all of the evidence that has been collected on the North American mainland will support that scenario. There's a book by Patricia Olive Dickinson and William Newbigging, and they say that, and I think the date of that is 2015, and they say that all of the mythical stories of the indigenous people of the North American mainland all say that they came from the North and the East. And probably heard about the Duher or Lanape and maybe, you know, somewhere around the Carolinas. Well, the uh, Lenape, the, they go all the way up to where I'm at here in Connecticut in southern, far southern New England. They, there were Lenape going down through Philadelphia and Pennsylvania and that whole that whole part of America, the Lenape played a, a kind of an interesting role in the colony's history. But yeah, you're absolutely right. From from the Carolinas north, they're the Lenape. The the rather than focus on, focusing on the Lenape just at the moment, mm-hmm. I would like to focus on the and the Duhair were related to the Lenape. The Duhair were very curious, composed of two races that were, that traveled together. They spoke the same language. They had the same culture, but one portion of the Duhair were big white people and the other portion were smaller brown people. which fits into the narrative that I've been proposing perfectly. Now, the the Lenape themselves are basically Norse. And in fact, it appears that the Norse of the so-called Western settlement in Greenland, and so that's halfway up the west coast of, of Greenland, they disappeared sometime after 1350. And the evidence strongly suggests that they went across the Davis Strait. Some of them remained in the north, and they were called white Eskimos within recent generations. And others of them went south, maybe skirting the eastern side of Hudson's Bay and into the heartland of, of, of North America. And also the, the, the people who went west from Newfoundland, a lot of them were also Norse. And the story of the Lenape is in the document called the Wallum Olum, Mm. which is a, a document that was created on wooden slips, much like the Chinese bamboo rolls. And the guy by the name of Raffinesque, sometime around 1850, he did a translation 
And in fact, some of the Wallam Olam talks about how the people moved from the north to the south. The Wallam Olam has been rejected as another fake. Fact is, is that the Wallam Olam fits the information as far as I have found. So it appears to me that the Wallam Olam is not fraudulent at all. Mm, wow. That's fascinating. I recently came across a copy of the Wallam Olam on a, a little trip. And then again, at a local bookstore, it was a little bit out of my budget at the time, but I, I am going to go back and, and pick it up because it's, it's absolutely fascinating. And correct me, please, if I'm wrong, but don't the Algonquin speaking people say in the Wallam Olam that they did with the mound building culture and recognize that they were separate altogether? Isn't that a part of the Wallam Olam or am I, you know, crossing that from somewhere else? I am not able to comment because the Wallam Olam is an extensive document and it is certainly open to a number of interpretations. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm going to be careful here and say that I really don't have sufficient information to talk about that particular aspect of it. Understood. Yeah, no problem. Back to the, the do hair. I recently came across a book titled America BC by a gentleman named Barry Fell. And he goes in yes. great length in, in the first yes. portion of his book talking about the Celts in America and Ogham. And do you think that maybe he would have agreed with your conclusions if he had seen it? Maybe do you think that it's not Celt? It's in fact, the, you know, a Norse sort of, or, or were there Celts well, here? Yeah, the, the Barry Fell, by the way, has been jumped on and excoriated and torn to shreds by, by the academic community because he was a, a Harvard scientist and uh, I believe he was a hard, what we would call a hard scientist. I'm not sure if it was chemistry or not, I don't remember. He wrote three books. And he's been torn apart. But in fact, I quote Barry Fell a fair amount. And I think that some of his interpretations are correct. But I think he has the sequence wrong. He simply didn't have enough information for the appropriate sequence. The, the Norse were as much tilt as Scandinavia. And recently, the last 20 years in Iceland, scientists have been looking at the DNA and have determined that the DNA of the people of Iceland is as much kilt as Scandinavian, particularly the maternal DNA. And not only that, they are realizing that the Icelandic language is probably as much kilt, or I should say Gaelic, as as it is Old Norse. Now, this is quite the revelation for the Icelandic people because they have tried from time immemorial to present the image that they were 
pure Norse, pure Old Norse from Scandinavia. But I think they just began to realize if we are going to be honest about our science, we have to recognize who we are. And they are now acknowledging that their ancestry is as much Gaelic as as much Celt as Scandinavian. Not only that, they are admitting that their language is as much Gaelic as Old Norse. Now, it's also interesting that although a lot of scientists, linguists, linguists have weighed in on the nature of the Beothic language, Dr. John Cooper at Dalhousie University in 2007, he died shortly afterward, he did an analysis of the Beothic language and determined that at least 23% of the Beothic language is indeed Gaelic. And in fact, given my own maternal language, I am able to see some of our own, my, my childhood language, I am able to see some of our language in the word list that we have from the Beothic, which should not be surprising because we are Beothic. Mm, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but it, yeah, in, in fact, the, the so-called Norse <clears throat> who came from Greenland were probably as much Celtic as Norse. Now, the Celts were also big, blonde, peaches and cream complexion people as the Norse were. So whether these people are the same genetic root as I suspect, then that should not be surprising. Those those two people, the Celts and the Norse, are very, very similar physically. Mm. Wow. And these people, I assume, were here before the plague you described, right? Because part of what Barry Fell is, is talking about in this book is a lot of the, the things they left behind, namely these giant tins and stone structures, petroglyphs, and all sorts of standing stones, menhirs, as the Scandinavians call them. I myself have even found a couple that I haven't managed to find in any books yet. Maybe there's someone else who's who's found the stone that I particularly am really, you know, impressed by. It's I mean, it's gigantic and it's shaped like well, you could think of it as uh, like a, a, a pot from a stove, right? A stove pot. It sort of looks like a like it has a handle, a big stone boulder with a handle jutting out of it. But from another angle, it kind of looks like a bird, or or even from a a more I don't know, syncretic perspective, it kind of looks like the Big Dipper. But this giant boulder, uh, among many others, are just described as glacial erratics by these, you know, so-called geologists and archaeologists. They, for the most part, ignore them. But it, you know, one I actually visited today in North Salem, New York, is it's called the Balanced Stone or the Balanced Rock, and it's this massive 60-ton boulder stacked on top of, you know, 
very small in comparison stones underneath it. And yeah, you have to, how advanced these people were to be able to accomplish something like that. I mean, it, it couldn't be an accident that they created these things. I mean, obviously to go through the effort to to put a 60-ton boulder anywhere, it must be something that's very important to you, you know? I mean, have you looked into this part of the whole scenario with with these peoples and, and their culture? No, other than I think that Barry Fell interpreted some things correctly. He talked about kilts coming from the Iberian Peninsula, maybe BC 7, 700 thereabouts. And of course, the there were probably Irish and God knows who else coming across the ocean. And I would suspect that there were huge numbers of people whose ancestry was in a Europe, in North America, before the pandemic of 1402 plus. And I think that Barry Fell uh, is interpreting correctly, but he did not know that there was a pandemic. So what he saw, I think, would have been of the people who were living on the North American mainland before 1400. And I also believe that most of those people expired during that pandemic. And I'm saying that because there is no evidence whatsoever that any of the indigenous people of today met anybody on, on the North American mainland that opposed their migrations. Later on, they fought amongst themselves. But as far as I know, there was no other than the, 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 the cannibals that we talked about that might have been the last vestiges of some of these people. That uh, virtually all of the people died during that pandemic that took place sometime between 1400 and 1430, say. So I think that Barry Fell was certainly onto something, but in the absence of knowing about the pandemic, then of course he made the net conclusion that there was some kind of continuing existence of the people from that early time to even up to the present day. And I think that was the, that's where his error lies. Not through, not through bad analysis, but having incomplete information. Hmm. Very interesting. Now, one thing that maybe we can circle back to considering what you just said with the Susquehannocks, which were people that lived along the very large Susquehanna River. It's also been described by geologists as one of the oldest rivers in the entire world. I, I wouldn't begin to know how they determine that, but we'll take their word for it that it's a very old river. And of course, it, it becomes the Chesapeake Bay, which Washington, D.C. is on, and many other important cities are on this river. But in the past, a group of people named the Susquehannocks gave their name to this river because they were, you know, basically prevalent there. And the way that other tribes describe these Susquehannocks is that they were fair-skinned, very tall, painted themselves, and and had different color hair. I don't remember if it was red or or maybe fair, you know, sort of blonde hair, but they they were totally, you know, different than their surrounding tribes, and they have a language that 
is very similar to Gaelic. Even the word Susquehanna itself can maybe go back to Sequana, which was, I believe, a deity in the Gaelic pantheon. There's also sort of a connection to that word with the French river, the Sequin, right? So I might not be pronouncing that French word correctly, but either way, I, I love the that you're bringing up etymology and, and language and how we can sort of trace history through words and language. Have you looked into the, the Susquehannocks? I mean, not to contradict what you said there, but I think they may be an example of one of these groups of people that survived the plague possibly and, and coexisted amongst the new inhabitants of North America that followed. I have not, but from your description, I would say that that information is consistent with the, the North who came from Greenland. Mm. That would fit perfectly into that narrative. Mm. And the the Norse, the Norse that we well, I, I I've begun to call them Celtic Norse because we have the now the historical the, the genetic information from Iceland, and we also have the the linguistic evidence. So my guess is that these people would have been primarily the north by three possible routes, one down through Hudson's Bay, as I described, one possibly from Greenland, more or less directly into the Gulf of St. Lawrence, and then the other portion who came through Newfoundland Island. I'm not going to be able to come up with a, a name. I'd have to go through my references. But recently, there were a couple of articles by a couple of guys in the States, and they are interpreting a what they call Ogham, and this these these characters tell a story of someone who had come to visit, and it took them two weeks to get down to Chesapeake Bay, for example, which two weeks in a, a sailboat at that time, that would have been, you know, approximately from the northeast coast of Newfoundland to that area. It would take about two weeks. So there's still an awful lot of stuff that has not been honestly interpreted. And I've been appalled at how much the academics have insisted on shoehorning information into the the historical paradigm. And in fact, it is easy to see that that they simply, I'm assuming they're doing it deliberately, otherwise it's stupidity. Right, right. Well, and, you know, when you look at the establishment of these Ivy League institutions here in America, Harvard, then Yale, I, I've been... Myself, trying to study as much as I can about Yale, considering I live very close by to that college. And and it's very interesting, you know, the, the colony of New Haven itself is founded on the Cabot claim. 
And it seems like there is this sort of, you know, secret knowledge of what happened here prior to the official discovery of the new world. And this is why the academics are altogether, you know, turning their nose up at any suggestion that there was anyone here worth noting, you know, besides Leif Erikson and Columbus, right? I mean, those are, are literally the only two figures that academia really, I mean, has written about. I'm sure there's a few others, but, uh, but yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm with you. It's, it's definitely suspicious. And I, I think there, there's a, a political context here. I mean, to think that China was here first, you know, I don't know what that could mean on a political stage here in, in 2023. I don't know. Uh, enough about geopolitics to to have an opinion there, but it def it definitely sounds like something that might you know call into question the the land claims and the rights of the American people and government and Canadian government, English government, you know, and their colonies. I mean, who knows? And a speculation, wild speculation. What, what if China were to 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 own this whole continent? sort of from behind the scenes. I mean, we're told we have all this debt in China. What if, what if that's what's really going on? And that's why we've had, you know, the opium wars and all these other sort of conflicts over there in, in Asia. Yeah, there are a lot of tangents here that we could easily get lost in. <laughs> sure, sure, <laughs> sure. We don't need to get lost too much, though. I, I do want to ask you, since we're about at 90 minutes, you know, maybe you have time for one or two more questions, and then maybe we can do a follow-up in, in a few weeks when you have time and continue this conversation. I definitely want to get one of your books. In the meantime, maybe we'll wait until your next book comes out, and I can have both of them, and, and will really, you know, hit it off here because it, it is a little difficult, you know, having sort of no prior knowledge of the Beothic. I mean, it's it's so fascinating, A, never hearing about these people, you know, for the first time now learning about it. But there is one other thing that I really, we I would be remiss if we didn't touch on this. You, you write in your email you sent to me that there are Buddhist pyramids, 600-year-old Chinese ships, and a Christian basilica that's at least 600 years old. So we've already established the timeline and the events that would have explained how these, you know, sort of what academia calls anomalies, we, we've established how they may have gotten there. But where exactly is this Buddhist pyramid? Is this in Newfoundland? It is on Newfoundland Island, yes. Wow. Wow. That's it's incredible. in the it's in the northern it's in the northern part of the island, and I don't reveal the exact location because there has already been some looting, and I want to see the stuff professionally excavated. And uh, looting is going will mean that we're going to lose information. Right. But in addition. In addition to the pyramid, there are numerous walls that are definitely for defensive purposes. But maybe the most spectacular facts of all is a tremendous array of cliff carvings. And these cliff carvings 
range from, let's say, 50 feet either way to one that is a an outline of a bird that is 1,500 feet long. We have carvings of mythical creatures, one that I'm calling the Blessed Buddha, animals, script. These are sometimes just a little bit difficult to discern because there are 500 years or more of moss and brush and so on. So they, they need to be they need to be cleaned up very carefully before they can be as suitable for tourists to visit. But it, this array of carvings, to my understanding, would be rivaled only by stuff of the Aztec Inca empires and the stuff in China. I, I think that this array will be will become one of the most famous human artifacts because it is it they are just so large so impressive now how large is this pyramid Not my estimate is, yeah the, the, my my estimate my estimate is about 60 feet high okay now when you say Buddhist pyramid is this more similar to what we see in in India or or what we're told is in China. I'm I'm saying Buddhist because the the Buddhist would have a a decoration of some kind on the top, maybe like a, a lotus bud or something like that. Mm-hmm. And one pyramid in particular, from the imagery that I have, seems to have this particular kind of decoration. An interesting aspect or in one case, there are two pyramids and a tower between the two. And if you drew a line between all three artifacts, you are 24 degrees west of north. If you go to China and look at some of the pyramids and so on there, maybe from approximately the same time, they are oriented 24, 23 degrees west of north. Wow. Lines up. Yeah, that's fascinating. And another thing that lines up, you, you brought up the, the Florida Chinese colony, and Lauren Jeffries described this Chinese voyage up the Mississippi River, and one of the things he pointed to as evidence of that was a cliff carving of what looks like a dragon. So, wow, we see these cliff carvings in in two different places where there are ancient or not so ancient, maybe we can call them medieval, Chinese voyages into the New World, right? Or, Or... really the old world, as we're learning more and more about these these places. They've been inhabited far longer than academia accepts. But thanks to you, Dr. Ryan, you know, we're, we're slowly uncovering the truth. So thank you so much for, for joining us here. Is there a place where folks can before go? You, before, yeah, yeah. Before, yeah, yeah. Before, before you run away, no, no. Let, me, let, let me say that I have found about 50 
villages hidden away in our northern boreal spruce and fir jungle. And in almost every one of these villages, there is a parish church. And none of these villages are older than, uh, younger than about 600 years old. Nobody knows about them except a few very trusted colleagues that I've shown them to and, and me. There was a very large Christian population here. And at our next discussion, maybe I started with saying that the North American history is based on a false paradigm. Maybe one of the topics that we might discuss at that time in a, in a future discussion would be the nature of the paradigm and how that paradigm came to be. I would love to have that conversation. If you do have a, a little more time, I don't want to run away. If you want to keep talking, I just, I also don't want to take up your time. I I know you might be, are you an hour ahead of me out there in, in Newfoundland? I think you are. I'm in, I'm about, well, no. Okay. No, just, we're, we're, we're a bit weird in any case. I think I'm an hour and a half ahead of you. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, even more so. I don't want to keep you up too late, but this is absolutely fascinating. And yeah, to think that all of this was going on here and people are, are, are leaving this all to, to just, you know, sort of get covered over. You said there's over 40 villages alone that just you've identified out here in, in these wilderness areas in Newfoundland. How populated is Newfoundland? I, I mean, I know very little about Newfoundland. I mean, my grandparents are Canadian, so I have a sort of idea of, of what rural life in Canada is like, but I imagine it's it's far more rural in a place like Newfoundland. The, the population can't be that large, right? No, we, we have the total population on the island because our provinces include, includes Labrador. The population on the island itself is something less than 500,000, and the population in Labrador is something less than 50,000. So our total population is just over a half million. Wow. So you can you can easily you can easily get lost. <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, compared to where I live, I mean, I, I could if I got high enough, I could see New York City from where I am. I mean, geez, that sounds like a a vastly different world and I would love to come explore it. It's it's definitely a place I plan on going to at some point in my life. Canada in general, not not just Newfoundland, but uh, wow, this has been really really Interesting. I, I'm excited to continue this conversation. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity. I have a few more questions, but again, I, I, I know it's late. I don't want to keep you up. And hmm, yeah, let me let me think. So we have these very interesting Beothic people who, for the most part, have been written out of history. And, you know, we're told very similar stories of other groups of people, but there's one in particular that stand out here in the States, and that's the, the Mandan Indians, and they connect possibly to a guy named Prince Madoc. Have you heard anything about these Welsh prince, this Welsh prince coming into 
the United States, I think they say it was around 1100 AD. Yeah, the, the 1100s, 1200s. I've read a fair amount on that, actually. And I think that there's every reason to to accept that that did happen. Unfortunately, all of their descendants died 150 years later. Mm, right, right. Yeah, that would have been... That would have been when this plague came through. And are there any possible ways of of finding, because, you know, we find sort of like these bog bodies, the peat bogs that preserve a fair amount of DNA evidence. Is there a way of, you know, proving ever this, this plague swept the North American continent? I mean, do you have a, a sort of idea of how that can go about being concretely proven or or do you think the historical evidence is sufficient enough i think the historical evidence is not sufficient enough we do have a one one historical document that says that the population of newfoundland was substantially destroyed by this pandemic and that, that is consistent with what was happening in Iceland at the time. There are quite a lot of, of artifacts that need to be examined, but we are in a situation where the genocide against the Beatics is still ongoing. Our government, for example, will destroy artifacts if I were to tell them where these artifacts are. They would have no compunction about destroying artifacts. In fact, I approached our government, our local government of, of Newfoundland and Labrador, and said the wood harvesting is taking place in close proximity to a very unique, very special, rare, maybe one-off kind of artifact and I'm asking you if you would draw a circle around that, and it doesn't have to be a big circle, maybe 500 feet in diameter, so that wood harvesting will not take place on top of this artifact. And they refused. Hello again. Hello. Sorry. Yeah. Spotty connection. I'm glad we did the phone instead of the internet because if the phone's doing this, I can't imagine what the internet would be doing. But uh, yeah, yes, it, it, exactly. I lost the, the academics in Newfoundland or any place else will not talk with me. Mm. Some academics at Yale University told me to go F myself. And that's exactly what some of the academics here in Newfoundland told me. The archaeologists will not talk with me. The historians will not talk with me. And I offered to go into the university in, in, because they teach periodically a biotic course. And I offered to go in and talk with them about the research that I've done for the past 12 years. They would not have me. 
So they are holding, they are holding to the old paradigm. The university, we have one university that has a couple of, of campuses. The university is, has something that it's calling an indigenization program. So they have invited the other recognized Aboriginal groups or indigenous groups to be involved, but they will not have the mother group, the Beothics, to be involved in the university in any manner whatsoever. I was offered a couple of jobs at the university and I was told that I had the skills that they needed, but that if I said that I was Beothic, I may as well cut my throat because I would never get a job at that university if I said that I was Beothic. And I said, I am Beothic. So I, <laughs> I oh. did not get, I did not get a position. <laughs> <laughs> well, I commend your well, integrity. Look, this, is, uh, this has been a lot of fun, and I look forward to to the the next discussion. And in the meantime, I will invite you and your listeners to really, yeah, come visit us in Newfoundland. We uh, we don't live in igloos. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and where can folks go to support you with this next book? Where should they look when it's released? You have a website you can share? It's on Amazon. It will be on Amazon. All right. So I'll make sure I yep. put your, your previous book in the link in the description here. And folks will have the new one. When that comes out, I'll update it so that if you're listening to this episode in a few months, that link will be in the description as well. So excellent. I look forward that, to, uh, that'll be wonderful. I look forward to the next conversation, Dr. Ryan and uh, for everyone tuning in. Thank you so much for being here and enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to this episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. And wow, welcome to April, folks. And I got to say, March was incredible. We crashed through all of our record, previous records, almost 200,000 downloads just in the month of March. So big shout out to all of our new listeners, everybody who probably tuned in after my appearance on Isaac Weisop's awesome show, Occult Symbolism and Pop Culture, used to be known as uh, Conspiracy Theories and Unpopular Culture. I think it's still, is it Unpopular Culture? Maybe not. I think it's Occult Symbolism and Pop Culture, which uh, countless folks reached out to me saying, hey, I heard John Isaac Weisop's show and now I love your show. So shout out to all of them. Thank you so much. I appreciate you tuning in. I appreciate all the folks who have been jamming on the Dr. Joseph Farrell episode. I know that was a big one. A lot of people reached out and said, wow, great job. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. It meant a lot to me to have him on the show. Uh, and, and today, this guest, Dr. 
Ronald Ryan. He hadn't heard of uh, Dr. Joseph Farrell. I think I brought him up during this conversation. But, um, yeah, interesting guy. You know, he definitely felt like uh, he had... He, had, he was a little standoffish at times, but I, I don't blame him for that. I don't think that's necessarily something uh, that had to do with me as much as it was the position I was taking and, uh, with my questions and, and maybe what I was suggesting. But yeah, Dr. Ryan is a very interesting character, someone who's out there kind of on the, the fringes uh, geographically and even more so in his community which is uh, unfortunate to hear I hope to have him back on the show to continue looking into this topic I actually had a person uh, who is a Micmac up there and I think they're in Canada or maybe northern Maine um, and they reached out and said they listen to the show so shout out to you I hope you found this episode interesting and yeah look forward to more conversations like this as we delve more into the hidden history of america north and south of course you know i do a show titled esoteric america it's available on youtube it has its own podcast feed where we go and look through america town by town city by city uh, and see what we can find so if you like this kind of topic you'll probably enjoy that show as well uh, I also do uh, another show with my friend Mike Wan. We're about to put out a new episode of Your Handbook for the Apocalypse with uh, a new friend, Austin, who was kind enough to share his story, his uh, experience going on a scene journey for all those who bought my book, The Scene, Editions 1 and 2. If you haven't yet, go into the link in the description and pick them up because the third one is on the way. That's right. When this episode is out, it will be available. Go into the link in the description and check out my new edition three of the scene uh, titled Strange New Haven. Hopefully it's finished by then because it's almost 40 something pages. It's way more than the first two books. So, uh, yeah, pick that up and and learn more uh, as we move along this Synchromystic ever expanding now. That is the scene. And I'm really grateful for all those who support the show on Patreon and Rockfin and by picking up copies of the scene. Really helps me continue doing what I'm doing, continue having great conversations like this one with today's guest, Dr. Ronald Ryan. So, yeah, look forward to more of that. I also have another podcast that. Uh, We'll be putting out a new episode very soon. It's dealing with specifically Skull and Bones. So if you're interested in that, the first episode is available now. Sign up on the Patreon or the Substack to get that today. And of course, I cannot do this show without you supporters on Substack, Patreon, and Rockfin. But also, the Hit Kit, my friend Garrett, our number one sponsor, our best sponsor, our only sponsor... He makes a great product. It's called the Hit Kit, and it's the number one way to get lit. I'm using it right now. You got your lighter in here. You got your blunts, your joints, whatever you're smoking. They stay safe and sound in these containers. You can swap out the tubes if they get a little stanky. You can swap out the tubes and put a new one in there, and you can keep your lighter right there. You'll never lose it again with a Hit Kit. Go to the Hit Kit on Instagram or go to hitkit.us. And use that promo code CRAZY, C-R-A-Z-Y, and get 20% off at checkout. 
pick up a hit kit. Get one for your friend. You've got a, a birthday celebration coming up. Get him a hit kit. Throw a few joints in there. I mean, that is a good birthday gift right there. If one of my friends got me some weed, rolled it up, threw it in a hit kit, got me a new lighter, I mean, that is a good birthday gift right there. So use the promo code CRAZY, save at checkout, help a, an American-made product, a fellow fan of this show. He owns and operates his company himself. Uh, give it a listen. And he's also got these dank banks. He just sent me a really cool one with uh, Geronimo on it. It's really awesome. It's a little different than the the first dank bank. The first dank bank has like a, a secret way of opening it. This one's a little bit more uh, intuitive or obvious. And uh, yeah, I like it. It's a good, I think it's like a desk caddy. That's what I would call this one. It's good if you're sitting at a desk like me, rolling up your weed. You want to keep it all nice and organized in one neat place keep it in your little desk caddy and get whatever designs you want on there slide it away in your desk no one will be none the wiser they'll just think you have a cool box in your desk so anyways cigars too if you're a cigar smoker i bet it'd be good for that too i wonder if uh if you throw one of those humidifier packets in there if it'll do anything but Anyways, I'm rambling on. This this one's getting long. Thanks for, for tuning in, folks. Thanks for supporting the show. Use the links in the descriptions to uh, support the show. And uh, until next time, immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are Fuck in the uh, now. Man, I think, I think I'm fucking peeking right now. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain. Cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit. Certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain. Hardly feeling like a person, but the vibes are perfect. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, my third eye's open and my chakras flowing. All seven channels in my spirit's floating. Knowledge feeling deeper than the ocean. It's the eightfold path in the sacred lotus. Uh, I'm peeking, flipping through Akashic records. My ego's decomposing like a leper I'm Mega Casey going some levitation So with zero hesitation as I jump into the spaceship I'm weary from faking like an earthling While skyfish dip and dive above the earth circling I'm spiraling, sacred geometry Studying my old selves like it's anthropology Honestly, feeling like life's a comedy As big a game as a paper run economy I've been playing safe but safest for the weaker heart way I'm peeking, tearing everything apart Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain Cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit uh, I'm peeking through the curtain Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain Hardly feeling like a person, but the vibes are perfect uh, I'm peeking through the curtain Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose Wait, I'm beta testing old theta frequencies I lay to rest the ego and the frequent themes That keep me seeing life inside a box Small minds kick rocks, Pandora less talk uh, I might need a suture for this rift in space I might stay and see how Lucifer's fruit tastes I'm hungry for knowledge and hungry for infinite And every time I'm peeking I can see it for an instant 
I'm peeking through the curtain at the crowd. Sheeps in their seats and the wolves on the prowl. Zeitgeist, spirit form, walking through the aisles. Consumerism living in their vacant smiles. Uh, now I'm peeking through the curtain at the sky. How I ain't even gotta try, gaining wisdom on the fly. I'm touching base with things I can't explain. Gods without names on a different plane. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain. Cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain. Hardly feeling like a person, but the vibes are perfect. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain. Cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit. But I feel it like a purpose Wait I'm peeking through the curtain Hardly feeling like a person But the vibes are perfect uh, I'm peeking through the curtain Nothing is for certain But I feel it like a purpose Wait, 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 wait.